In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Please be seated. Well, if you've been watching the news this week, those Old Testament texts seem particularly relevant, don't they? We say, Lord, how long? Where is justice? Where is righteousness? Well, I began last week by asking you all a question. The question was, are you going the way of the cross? For our text last Sunday, and this Sunday as well, is in Mark chapter 10. And Mark chapter 10 brings that question very much to the forefront. Are you going the way of the cross? Now, why is that? Well, if you were with us last week, you remember we had this uh, rather esoteric discussion of world view. Because the Gospels were not written just to inform us about the life of Christ, but to invite us to join into it. The way the Gospel is told by Mark becomes a framework about which we should organize our life. Jesus' story should become our story. Jesus' story in Mark is really like a three-act play. The first act is Jesus' ministry in Galilee. And all that he did, whatever he did, Jesus had one single overriding purpose. And that purpose was to bear witness to himself. The Son of God has now come to be Savior of the world. Now, how's that story supposed to inform our worldview? Well, last week we said it means that we, like Jesus, in all that we do, whether we're at a restaurant or at a gas station or talking politics across the back fence with our neighbor, in all that we do, we are to be a witness to Jesus as the Son of God. And then in the third act, we see Jesus working atonement for the world. And act three is an invitation to be reconciliation for those around us. Reconciliation with our family members, our boss, with those who have hurt us intentionally or unintentionally. Well, this morning we come to act of the gospel play, and it is Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. And thus the question comes powerfully to us again, are we going the way of the cross? Now let me invite you to take out this handout. And this morning I'd like to begin with point three on that handout. Point three. What is the meaning of the journey in Mark 10? Now, as you look at the little map there, you can see that the journey actually begins in the far north of Israel. And it begins in a city called Caesarea Philippi. It is there that Jesus knew he had finally, at last, completed his Galilean ministry. For there, at long last, Peter finally is able to make the good confession. Peter, Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are 
the Christ. Jesus realizes now that his witness to himself is complete. The future is secure. And finally, Peter and the disciples get it. So, why would Jesus then, after having accomplished his mission, go on a journey? What was he going to do? Well, the very next thing we read after Peter's confession is in Mark 8.31. It's in your handout there. Mark 8.31, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. He said this plainly. Now, only six days later, on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter is able to confirm with his own mind, his own eyes, that he has, in fact, said the right thing. His confession was true. And a second time, after that transfiguration, Jesus again warns his disciples. He says, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will arise. But they didn't understand these things. You see, they simply couldn't imagine a suffering Messiah. They couldn't imagine, perhaps like you and me, when all is going well, when all seems so right with the world, and triumph appears to be so close at hand that their powerful, beloved Jesus would be offered up. Well, if you look again at that little map, you will see that Mark chapter 10 begins at the very spot where Jesus crosses from the west side to the east side of the Jordan River. And all the events of Mark 10 occur as Jesus is traveling from north to south on the east side of the Jordan. Great crowds are following with him, and the twelve are absolutely convinced that the kingdom of God is just about to appear. But only Jesus knows the real outcome of the journey. When all seems perfect, and victory seems so close at hand, Jesus warns them a third time. And in Mark 10.33, he says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Though no one else understands, nevertheless, Jesus carries on undeterred, undistracted, and unrelenting to accomplish the will of God. You know, when you think about it, it's interesting the things that Peter chose to take out of the life of Christ to share with those early Christians in Rome. You know, most of them don't make Peter or the rest of the disciples look very good. They all appear as flawed, frail humanity, stumbling and stammering about in the presence 
of Jesus. It is, if, it is almost as if Peter were trying to say, folks, with all my foibles and my follies and my failures, I've learned not to have confidence in myself, but in Jesus alone. And in essence, that is what the early church later came to understand Jesus' journey to mean. You see, Jesus is our example. Our lives are supposed to imitate him as we take up our cross and follow him. Jesus is to be our final and best example. So let's go back to this worldview thing here just for a minute. Allow me to ask you a question. Who is your hero? Who is your hero? Some 24-year-old overpaid football player? Is it some 30-year-old or maybe it's 70-year-old rock star? Is it some 19-year-old anorexic Hollywood model? Or perhaps it's a 50-year-old entrepreneurial wizard. The Gospels call out to you and me, and they say, Jesus, he ought to be your hero. Here's the second thought. Who sets the tone for your Christian life? When you compare yourself to your Christmas and Easter Christian neighbors, do you say, "Eh, I'm doing pretty good? Or do you reflect upon Jesus' complete intentionality in his journey? Every single step he took was calculated to bring him closer to accomplishing the Father's will, no matter how costly it was going to be. Friends, does that describe your Christian life? Are you just okay with being a Christian couch potato? The Gospels are an invitation to a whole new world view. And as you reflect upon that invitation, whether to accept it or not, may I offer you a little bit more food for thought? Jesus' purpose in life was to do the will of God. When was the last time you sat down and had a little chat with your own soul? You said, soul? What is my purpose in life? What am I doing? We all live chaotic lives, don't we? We are all full of good intentions. But a lot of the time we lack follow-through, don't we? Jesus lived every single day coherently doing the Father's will. Have you asked yourself, Is my life 
focused or is it scattered all over the map? By the time of Mark 10, the disciples had been with Jesus for more than three years. The journey was the final opportunity for them to ask the question, what is this going to cost? What is there to gain? Do you know the answers to those questions in your own life? Well, friends, this is my final opportunity today to speak with you. Next week, the bishop will be here, and then the following week, your wonderful new dean will be at the helm. But if I may, I'd like to close with some words of truth. And they are hard words. Because Jesus' journey to Jerusalem was a journey to die. He died to self in obedience to the Father's will, yet his death brought life to the world. We too are called to make a journey by way of the cross. And most of the time, our cross is not a physical one, as Jesus was in the Gospels. Yet nevertheless, Mark 10 speaks about a lot of hard things. And if we are to do the Father's will, they will require death to self. In Mark 10, Jesus speaks of marriage as a lifelong bond. And friends, that is a very, very hard thing. It is a matter which we Christians as a corporate body have significantly failed in. And as blessed as the institution of marriage can be and should be, I promise you this, it is life's most single refining experience. <laughs> you can all say amen. No one who stays married will stay married. No one who stays married Will, able, will be able to do so without death to self. No one who wants to stay married will succeed in that good goal without imitating Jesus and putting the other first. Ladies, Jesus knew exactly how hard it can be he knows exactly what it is not to have been heard. Mark 10 has got a perfect illustration of it. Think of it. Right after Jesus shares his heart, he says, Fellas, I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be spit upon. I'm going to be flogged. I'm going to be killed. James and John come to him and say, Yeah, right, good deal, Lord. And can we, by the way, be on your right and left hand in your glory? Now, the other disciples are mad. Do they come up to James and John and say, you bunch of insensitive clods, you men, don't you understand Jesus has just shared his heart with you? No. 
They're mad because they didn't think of it first. Jesus knows what it is to be misunderstood. Men, men, no one will stay married who does not learn to love and serve as Jesus loved and served. As Jesus loved and died himself. Hard things. The way of the cross, too, is learning to set aside self-will. And folks, that is a lifelong process. And it's a hard one for sure. We don't do it very well. I can't tell you how many times I've had people come up to me and say, No, Pastor, I'm just not going to heed that counsel. There's no way that that is going to happen. I don't care that it's right. I'm just not going to do it. Now, friends, what if Jesus had said that to the Father? Where would we be today? The way of the cross means facing the truth about wealth. And that runs absolutely counter to our innate desires, the desires that come from deep inside. No matter where you stand on the economic ladder at this church this morning, I promise you this, you are fabulously wealthy, both historically and geographically. Let your mind take a trip to Bangladesh or most of India or China or Guatemala or to Mali. Rwanda, Kazakhstan, Uganda, and about 75 other countries. See, the problem is that we allow ourselves to be surrounded by a dozen little messages every day that say, you're without, you know, you've really been deprived. And before long, we begin to believe those messages. And then we find ourselves falling into that cycle of wanting and longing, and debt. Now Jesus said, it's impossible to be double-minded. You can't love God and stuff. But you know what the truth is? The truth is we are double-minded. We try awfully hard in dividing our love. Jesus said, the rich cannot enter the kingdom of God. But I'd sure like to give it a try. It's the Western world view that we inhabit. Worldliness is such a common part of my life, and yours too, I expect, that we hardly come to recognize the futility of trying to live in two worlds at once. On those infrequent occasions when we actually see it in ourselves and name it for what it is, we, like the Twelve, are exceedingly astonished and we lament, well, who then can be saved? Fortunately, Jesus looks at us and he says, with man, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. You know, unless 
We are called to be Amish or a hermit. I can't see that there's a whole lot that we can do about it, except perhaps to be as generous as possible at all times and all ways, and to pray, God, make it possible for me to love you through and beyond the stuff of this world. The journey to Jerusalem reminds us that these are just some of the costs of following Jesus. But the journey not only moves to the cross, it looks beyond. It looks to the reward which must inevitably follow. And God knows that whatever you are willing to pay, he is willing to repay both in this life and in the age to come. Now, there's no point in pretending otherwise. In life, in the short term, sometimes the accounting will prove to be disappointing. For those given to discouragement and despair, it may seem like the bad guys come out on top too often. That those who tithe in difficult circumstances end up in even more difficult circumstances. That those who turn the other cheek get that one slapped as well. Sight mocks us as fools for Christ. But faith says, patience, patience, there will be a good reward. The final journey to Jerusalem Mark 10 closes with this little episode. Jesus crosses the Jordan and he comes to the town of Jericho. And as he leaves Jericho, he encounters the earnest pleading of a blind beggar by the name of Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus' response to Jesus is a wonderful illustration of what it means to be with Jesus on the journey to a cross. So... To you, my fellow beggars, I close with these four questions. What do you want Jesus to do for you? Are you willing to keep on asking? When he finally calls you, will you spring up and take action? Until then, will your faith be sufficient? Let's pray. O oh, faithful and constant Lord Jesus, we would be willing, we would be made willing to join you in the journey. But we acknowledge that all such things are impossible with men. 
have compassion on us. Stop and hear our supplication. O gracious Son of God, give us faith in spite of our pain and poverty. Give us faith when the world tells us to shut up and fall in line. Give us faith to hear your call and spring up. Give us faith to receive new sight and to follow you. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.